Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Wednesday, January 18th, 2023 and the end of week 47 of the Russia-Ukraine War. It's been 3,248 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 329 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine War. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that the power struggle between military leaders aligned with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu versus those aligned to private military company or PMC Wagner Group head Yevgeny Prigozhin will continue. Second, we maintain the ongoing information warfare between the Russian Ministry of Defense or MOD and PMC Wagner is a byproduct of the strife within the Kremlin. Third, We maintain that the current winner of the ongoing infighting between factions loyal to Shoigu versus Prigozhin is Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has shifted negative attention back to the Ministry of Defense. Fourth, we assess there is a very high risk of punitive missile strikes on civilians and civilian infrastructure from January 19th to 21st, and that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Fifth, We maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Sixth, we maintain that Russian forces led by PMC Wagner Group have taken the initiative on the Solidar-Bakhmut axis, but remain largely defensive throughout the rest of Ukraine. Seventh, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations, despite the slow success on the Solidar axis. Eighth, we maintain there will be a second wave of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation in January or February 2023. And finally, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of a major offensive operation is only a remote possibility. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. For the second day in a row, there was minimal information out of Luhansk and no reports of major fighting. On the Svatova axis, the Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian forces in Novoselivske were shelled, indicating that they remain within the village on the P7 highway. Mercenaries with War Gonzo appeared to have lightly edited the January 16th AM report from the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine and made it their own. 
There were two areas where they deviated from the Ukrainian report, including the Kremina axis, claiming Russian forces launched another counteroffensive on Chervonopopivka. The Russian MOD also reported fighting in Dibrova, with a video supporting the claim. Based on the information, we adjusted the line of conflict. On the Lysychansk axis, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported continued fighting, quote, in the area of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk. Wargonzo claimed that Russian forces stopped trying to advance from the north and attacked from the southeast, attempting to retake lost positions. This validates our map update from January 16th. Although Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, didn't report on a specific direction, he did claim that Russian forces were attempting to recapture lost positions. Otherwise, the situation was described as stable by Haidai, and Russian sources didn't make any specific claims of major changes. Assessment here. Both belligerents have likely entered a short operational pause for troop rotation, resupply, and reconstitution. We do not believe the reduction in fighting is due to the battle reaching a culmination point or becoming a stalemate. Our team geolocated a video of Russian military equipment moving through Luhansk in and out of the Kremina axis. A small military convoy was rallying in Novookhtirka, about 45 kilometers from Kremina via Severodonetsk. The video showed more military equipment near the main bus depot in Severodonetsk and near St. Nicholas Temple Chapel in Voyevodivka on the P-66 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, between Kremina and Severodonetsk. In Voyevodivka, military equipment was moving towards and away from the front. In northeast Donetsk, on the Siversk axis, the GSAFU reported that Russian forces continued to attack Verknokamyanskia and Spirna from the Luhansk-Donetsk administrative border. Further south, fighting erupted near Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, with Ukrainian forces holding their defensive positions. The tiny but strategically located village on the T-1302 highway, which now exists in name only, has been contested for eight months. PMC Wagner's social media channels released a statement saying, quote, Mine number 7 was completely liberated, end quote, and claimed Solidar is fully captured only a week after Prigozhin originally claimed his mercenary forces captured the town. Mercenaries with Rybar claimed, quote, cleanup continues, end quote, while the GSAFU reported Ukrainian forces repelled an attack, quote, in the area of Solidar. We maintain Solidar is under Russian control, and Ukrainian forces withdrew to the west. The GSAFU reported continued fighting, quote, in the area of Sil which doesn't leave a lot of places where battles could be going on beyond Seal itself or the area just to the north. Between Solidar and Krasnopolivka, a graphic video that is not suitable for work and some viewers may find disturbing, showed Ukrainian artillery and mortar units directed by drones killing dozens of Wagner mercenaries attempting to hide in a poorly constructed trench line. If you do want to watch the video, we do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Quick sidebar, what makes the trench poorly constructed is the lack of 45 and 90 degree angles, which would prevent creating shooting lanes if ground forces were to breach the trench, and the lack of any bunkers along its length 
leave nowhere to hide from accurate artillery fire or fragmentation rounds. A Russian source reported continued fighting near Krasnohora. Fighting continued northeast, east, and southeast of Bakhmut, with Russian forces pushing on Ukrainian defenses. Ukrainian video showed what was likely Switchblade 300 anti-personnel kamikaze drones striking Wagner mercenaries in a trench near the recycling sorting center. Prigozhin of PMC Wagner directly denied claims by Russian and Ukrainian sources that Russian-aligned mercenaries had captured part or all of Klishivka. He wrote, quote, Probably this is our Russian tradition. Always try to run ahead of the locomotive. Therefore, so many bodies remain on the rails. Klishivka was not taken. There are tough fights. Indeed, we have had some success. As I said, the crowds of talkers running ahead of the engine do a lot of harm to the guys who die. Therefore, at the moment, a significant part of Klishivka is under the enemy. He means Ukraine. When the units of the Wagner Group release her, I will inform you. End quote. Mercenaries with Rybar, who falsely claimed days ago that Klishivka was surrounded and being cleansed, must have gotten the memo, writing today, quote, The advancement of units of the RF armed forces is complicated by many strongholds, terrain, and constant enemy artillery fire. End quote. This counters the narrative from Ukrainian sources and at least one significant online analyst that the village is all but lost. There aren't any pictures or videos for the open-source intelligence community to use for geolocation, and the absence of information creates rumors. We moved the line of conflict southwest of Opitne and tweaked the area of no-man's land on our war map. We maintain our assessment that Russian success in this area has been exaggerated, and Prigozhin validated our January 16th conclusion. If PMC Wagner or Russian troops reached the settlement, there would be picture reports. The GSAFU reported that the town of Predtechne was successfully defended, and a similar report of fighting, quote, in the area, from last week, we believe this was a squad or platoon-sized reconnaissance or DRG unit trying to move through patches of forested area that were discovered. In Kramatorsk, the industrial area was hit by Grad or Smirch rockets or S-300 missiles used for a ground attack. There was significant damage, but no injuries were reported. In southwest Donetsk, apparently we're replaying the greatest hits of the Donetsk People's Republic today. On the Avdiivka axis, the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, made another attempt to cross the H-20 highway near Kamyanka and was unsuccessful. Pavlo Kirilenko, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported only sporadic artillery fire on Avdiivka. South of Avdiivka, there was no change in the situation. Elements of the 1st Army Corps tried to advance out of Opitne, the one north of the Donetsk International Airport. Fighting continued in Vodyana. Separatists failed to advance in Pervomaiske. And, of course, Russian forces also failed to move closer to the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske. On the Marinka axis, the self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushilin, claimed that Ukrainian forces had been pushed out of the center of Marinka and were in the western outskirts. We've lost count of how many times he's made this claim since August 21st. Pushilin's track record of being less accurate than a broken clock didn't stop Rybar from echoing the claim without mentioning the source. To be clear, 
we dismiss Pushalin's claim and consider it disinformation. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces maintained their defensive lines. DNR separatists fought positional battles near Pobida, with no change in the situation. Insurgents in Mariupol reported significant Russian troop movements through and around the city. In the morning, a convoy of seven main battle tanks, or MBTs, moved through the city toward Berdyansk in Zaporizhia. Later in the day, a group of 12 MBTs, five self-propelled howitzers, or SPGs, and 15 trucks carrying Russian troops arrived from Russia, while another eight T-62M MBTs and two SPGs arrived from the Berdyansk area. DNR officials reported a machine-building plant in Khartsezik was destroyed in a rocket attack fired by HIMARS. No casualties were reported, with one picture showing a room full of mattresses, furniture, and possible cases for anti-tank or map-mad weapons leaning on the back wall. Pushlin, who is under increasing pressure from people living in occupied Donetsk due to problems with heat, water, electricity, internet, and food prices, held a conference today. He ordered that any employees or leaders responsible for providing heat to areas where the system has failed will be forced to live in those zones until heat is restored. After banning the entry of private vehicles by Russian military mobics and volunteer fighters yesterday, the Russian military has ordered all residents of the DNR to register their vehicle information with the local commissariat. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was mutual shelling on the west and east banks of the Dnipro, with Russian forces launching the largest number of fire missions to date on Free Ukraine. Russian forces hit the areas west of the Dnipro 102 times, striking the city of Kherson 36 times, killing one and wounding two. Russian artillery units used thermite munitions throughout the day on Kherson, Antonivka, and Vereslav. Stanislav, at the mouth of the Dnipro on the Dniprovska Gulf, was also shelled. Yaroslav Yanushevich, Kherson Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the water utility facilities in Kherson were shelled, including the administration building, machine room, and oxygenation station. The children's puppet theater was heavily damaged during the barrage. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, reported that the 330-kilovolt power line was disconnected for several hours so that plant operators could perform scheduled maintenance. The work was completed as planned, and the line was re-energized. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi stated he was continuing talks with Kyiv and Moscow, with the IAEA still trying to establish a demilitarized zone around the plant and facilitate the withdrawal of Russian and Chechen forces from ZNPP. Otherwise, Russia and Ukraine exchanged sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapol to Orihiv. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, the composition of the Black Sea fleet didn't change, with 16 ships on patrol, including six surface vessels and one Kilo-class submarine capable of launching caliber cruise missiles. 
The current flotilla can launch up to 44 missiles, with Operational Command South, or OCS, believing that the vessels are armed with 30 calibers. In north and northeast Ukraine, the IAEA reported that on January 14th, a Russian missile struck the Kyiv Research Institute, causing a fire where a decommissioned research reactor is stored. The spent fuel for the reactor is stored on site. There were no injuries or release of radiation, and the IAEA had inspected the location late last year at the behest of the Kremlin after falsely claiming Ukraine had developed a dirty bomb at the location. An Airbus helicopter H-225, previously known as a Eurocopter EC-225 LP Super Puma, crashed in the residential neighborhood of Brovery near the International Airport, which remains closed to commercial traffic. A kindergarten was damaged and was occupied at the time of the crash. There was a large fire burning at the time of recording, and as the fire was being brought under control, pictures of the wreckage showed what appeared to be the flight crew section of the 24-passenger rotorcraft, which was completely destroyed. Nine people were reported to be aboard the rotorcraft, and there were no survivors. At the time of recording this, the state emergency service had confirmed the number of fatalities as 14, including one child. 25 people were injured, 11 of them children, in the fire that resulted from the crash. Internal Affairs Minister of Ukraine, Denis Monastrysky, his deputy Yevin Yenin, and State Secretary Yuri Lubkovich were on board the helicopter and among those killed in the crash. The helicopter reportedly took off near dawn while electricity was out in the region and was flying in dense fog. There are no indications that the craft was shot down. In Kharkiv, the Russian MOD made another claim of fighting near Vilshana, reporting a Ukrainian DRG or reconnaissance unit was engaged in fighting in Liman Pershi. We can't verify the report. In Kupiansk, the Kupiansk Motor Transport Vocational College was destroyed when the facility was struck by an S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for a ground attack. There were no injuries reported. On the Russian front, Rybar claimed that Shevikino was shelled, while local telegram and Russian state media channels in the Bilgorod Federal District reported nothing. Russian telegram channel Bilgorod No. 1 wrote, quote, What happened during the night? Fortunately, everything was calm. End quote. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. DTEK reported that the January 14th missile attack on Ukraine damaged nine different thermal power plants and three major substations. At one power plant, one of the turbine decks was destroyed. The situation with power has somewhat improved, with six oblasts reporting they were experiencing emergency outages, down from nine reported yesterday. Hryuri Tsekmistrenko, a Ukrainian-born Canadian citizen from British Columbia, was killed in action on January 14th. He and his wife moved to Kyiv in January 2022, and after the war broke out, he volunteered as a medic. President Putin submitted a draft law to the State Duma that will terminate the international treaties of the Council of Europe, removing the Russian Federation from the earlier agreements. It was announced that Putin would make a major speech on January 18th, the 80th anniversary of breaking the siege of Leningrad. Spoiler, there was no speech. Presidential advisor Alexei Arostovich submitted his resignation on January 17th 
to the head of the president's office, Andrei Yermak, where it was immediately accepted. Arastovich crossed a bridge too far with his latest unsubstantiated claim that Ukrainian air defenses deflected the KH-22 missile that struck a Dnipro apartment complex. The Gafpron Arastovich wrongly claimed on two occasions that ships of the Russian Black Sea Fleet had been sunk, broke operational security more than once, and shared misinformation about the operational situation in Kherson. The Netherlands and the United States are discussing providing Ukraine with a third Patriot missile defense battery. While some sources have reported that the United States approved the transfer, at the time of recording, officials from both nations have only reported ongoing dialogue. There are rumors that Germany may approve the transfer of up to 15 Leopard 2 tanks, which won't arrive until October 2023, on the condition that the decision is made now. Speaking of rumors, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Russian social media channels claimed that Putin's speech would be about a major policy change concerning the war in Ukraine and hinted or outright claimed that another round of mobilization, if not full mobilization and martial law, would be announced. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov denied that Putin's January 18th speech would include a new wave of mobilization or a, quote, regime change, and that any reports claiming this are, quote, rumors that should be ignored. Putin is set to make his speech in St. Petersburg, called Leningrad during the 1942-1943 Nazi siege, and where PMC Wagner headquarters are located. At the time of recording, a Russian Tu-214SR so-called doomsday plane was circling St. Petersburg, hinting that President Putin had arrived in the city. While Peskov may be technically correct that a new wave of mobilization won't be announced, that's only a technicality because the Duma never passed legislation ending the partial mobilization that began on September 21st. The Kremlin can announce a continuation of the current policy without passing new legislation. Russian mill blogger Vladlin Tatarsky shared a short video of members of the Russia Imperial Movement, or RIM, promoting the Crew Russia Telegram channel. In July 2022, we published an in-depth investigation into the RIM and its connection to the now-defunct United States neo-Nazi organization Atomwaffen. The Russia Imperial Legion, which is the mercenary training arm of RIM, was declared a white nationalist terrorist organization by the United States in April 2020 for providing terrorist training to United States citizens. The Russia Imperial Legion, not to be confused with the Bars 13 Russian Legion, had up to 4,000 neo-Nazi mercenaries fighting for Russia, reporting to PMC Wagner's command structure. Most of that force was successfully denazified, as it were, by Ukrainian troops during the opening months of Russia's large-scale invasion. On the subject of PMC Wagner, Sergei Mirinov, who leads the Adjust Russia faction, addressed the state Duma calling for the legalization of PMC Wagner. See, in Russia, private militias are illegal, but so-called paramilitary clubs are not. Approved paramilitary clubs are controlled by the Voluntary Society for Cooperation with the Army, Aviation, and Navy, or DOSAAF. DOSAAF was created in the 1950s by the Soviet Union 
to promote a healthy lifestyle and teach the history of Russian military glory. Organizations such as the RIM and their militia arm, the Russia Imperial Legion, operate under the DOSAAF umbrella and the blessing of the Kremlin. Further indicating that the rift between Shoigu and Prigozhin is growing and factionalized, Mirinov told the Duma, quote, The Russian army has much to learn from the Wagner PMC in training recruits. End quote. Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu was reportedly in Ukraine. Video from Russian state media showed Shoigu receiving a briefing from Lieutenant General Rostam Muradov, commander of the Eastern Military District, and presenting medals to Russian soldiers. General Yevgeny Nikiforov, responsible for the defense of Kremina and Svatova and the 4th Western Military District commander in ten and a half months, was at the meeting via video conference. Everyone in the video was clean-shaven with perfect haircuts and uniforms, although General Nikiforov looked like he would probably do with a dirty chai with a double shot of espresso. Shoigu said that from 2023 to 2026, the Russian military should be able to increase its size from approximately 900,000 soldiers in 2021 to 1.5 million. This was previously announced in mid-December as part of a broader set of military reforms announced by President Putin, which will bring the Russian Ministry of Defense back to the future. Moscow has already dropped the concept of having battalion tactical groups, or BTGs, and is moving its unit and command and control structure to a 1970s Soviet-era style. Tatarsky shared a post from Andrei Medvedev, not the Wagner commander, we'll talk about that later, which claimed civilian vehicles are being blocked from entering Ukraine by Russian border agents because Mobics are arriving in their personal vehicles, and this has been causing problems. However, the ban extends beyond Russian military units supplementing transport with civilian vehicles and includes volunteers, who sometimes have no other way, according to Medvedev, to get to the special military operations zone. Also, would anyone care to guess what's happening to the confiscated vehicles? All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is minor graphic detail in today's report, and if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Ukrainian officials reported that after 69 hours of rescue operations, the search for survivors in Dnipro has ended. The January 14th missile strike killed 45, including six children, with the youngest victim just one year old. Rescuers pulled 39 from the rubble alive, and four of the missing were found to already be in hospital. A former Wagner Group fighter named Andriy Medvedev, see, I told you we'd talk about it later, has defected to Norway and requested political asylum, according to Vladimir Osechkin, founder of the human rights group Gulagu.net. We had previously reported that Medvedev was the unit commander of Yevgeny Nuzhin, a Wagner mercenary who was executed with a sledgehammer in November. At the time of Nuzhin's execution, Medvedev was already reported as missing and wanted by Wagner for desertion. Medvedev claims he tried to cross into Finland twice without success, and then headed north, crossing near the village of Nikil on January 12th with dogs tracking him. 
Medvedev says after crossing into Norway, he pounded on the door of the first house he found and explained in broken English for them to call the authorities so he could be taken into custody. Medvedev allegedly signed a contract with PMC Wagner in July 2022 and fled four months later. Wagner founder Prigozhin dismissed Medvedev as a Norwegian citizen nobody, which was obviously untrue with a defector holding a Russian passport. Medvedev says he wants to cooperate with war crime investigators and is being held in custody for now. In economic news, the ruble was unchanged with an exchange rate of 69 for one U.S. dollar. Western oil prices ticked upward, with WTI crude increasing to $81 a barrel and Brent rising to 87 Russian Ural's crude plunged to a, quote, official price of $51 a barrel. United States wholesale Arbob gasoline on the spot market was up a nickel to $2.57 a gallon or $0.68 cents a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures rose to €59 Euros per megawatt hour for February and March 2023 delivery. Chicago SRW wheat futures also inched up to $7.50 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.